you please would you turn with me and Cressy to 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 12 to 21. Thank you very much Cressy. So the reading tonight is from 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 12 to 21 and we're reading from the NKJV. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." And when we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much, Chris. Yes, lovely. Well, uh, and greetings as well to all those on Zoom tonight. Uh, I just wanted to share a little mini message before we come to the study of the word later on. And I want to answer the question, how do we get our Bible? You know, a lot of people, when they become Christians, they say, this is wonderful. You know, I come to see the Bible as the word of God. I put my trust in what is written there. But how did we get this book in our hands that we have, that we put our trust in? Especially since it's been 2,000 years plus since the apostles, the last writers of the Bible, uh, existed on the earth. So how did the Bible come to us? Well, I want to try and answer that question tonight, just briefly. This is not a lecture, but I want to show you the seven steps that there were for the Bible to come from heaven to your hands here tonight in Coombe Down. Uh, so that you can be able to answer the question, how we got this book. And step number one is the step of inspiration. And by inspiration, what we mean is that when the prophets and apostles were writing the Bible, when they were writing the messages God gave them from the Bible, they weren't just writing under their own influence. They weren't just writing good ideas. They were writing under the power of God so that God controlled what they said to the point that Everything they said was exactly what God wanted them to say and nothing they said wasn't what he wanted them to say. So uh, nothing was added, nothing was left out uh, because they were under the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's the first and most important thing. There's a lot we can say about inspiration. It's a very important 
doctrine. But there's two key verses. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or literally, it's God-breathed. That's how it's translated in the NIV. And one we read tonight, Questy, thank you. 2 Peter 1.21, Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that word moved is a wonderful word. It's the word for a ship being driven along by the wind. You can get the picture of that, can't you? The wind coming and steering the ship, pushing the ship where it's meant to go. That's what the Holy Spirit did with the people who wrote the Bible, the prophets and apostles uh, who uh, gave us the very words of God. So that's step number one, inspiration. Step number two was distribution, because after the apostles had written the, the letters, and especially I'm focusing here on the New Testament, because the Old Testament had already been uh, received and, uh, and settled by the time uh, the apostles came. But the letters that the apostles wrote, they wouldn't have done anybody any good if they'd just stayed on their desks or just stayed in their prison cells. They had to be taken by a postman to the place where they were going to be read in the synagogue or they were going to be read in the churches and uh, or in the um, house churches, I should say. And this was step number two, distribution, so that the word could get from the apostles to the people. And we read in the Bible of people like Phoebe, who carried the letter to the book of Romans to the church at Rome from Corinth, where Paul was. Phoebe was from St. Korea herself, but she was the post lady who carried that letter. And so were many others. We know Onesimus and, and uh, carried the letter to uh, the Colossian church and so on. And Paul said this in Colossians 4.16. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, showing that distribution, that the message was then carried to the people. Step number three followed on from that, and that's the step of recognition. After the people heard the message, after they heard the letter uh, and heard the word of God, uh, they recognized it as being just that, that they recognized it as being the word of God. They didn't decide it was the word of God because that would put man in power and authority over the Bible. They recognized the authority of God in it and recognized it was the word of God. And this was something that happened right at the very beginning. In the letter of Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, later on in this book, we see that Peter says this about Paul's letters. He says, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, and then he talks about how people try to twist them, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And if you notice that last phrase there, he says the rest of the scriptures, what he's saying is Paul's letters are counted as scripture even now. That's an amazing thing for a Jew who held the Old Testament in the highest regard to say these letters were the scriptures. But that was because they recognized they were that. They recognized it was the word of God. Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians 14. He said, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So that was the third step. They recognized these these letters as being the word of God. Step number four that followed on from that was formulation. And that is when 
when they received all the letters that were going to be written to the church, right down to the book of Revelation, about AD 96, they then formulated unofficial lists of those books. So they knew which, which were the letters that were to be used in church services and in devotional study. And they have made unofficial lists, formulating uh, the, uh, the list of letters that we have in the New Testament. In fact, we have uh, a copy of one of these early lists that goes right the way back to the second century. It's not the only one as far as we know, but uh, it's called the Moratorian Canon. And in AD 170, this list was written out of the 27 letters of the New Testament, Matthew through to Revelation. This is very important to understand. Uh, one of the books I've got at home that's helped me a lot, somebody kindly gave this to me, uh, was the Bible and history. And in this book, the authors make this rightful claim. They said, yet it was not the church leaders who decided this issue. In the end, they would only confirm the decision that the church at large had reached gradually. They're saying, very importantly to understand, this wasn't a list that was formulated and given to the church and told those are the ones you're to read and the others you're not to read. It was what people themselves recognised and it was an unofficial thing. And later on, the church then uh, made that solid. And that's what canonization is, step number five. <coughs> because after having a, a formulated list of those letters, they then make, made it rock solid for the church. At two church councils called the Synod of Hippo and the Synod of Carthage in the fourth century uh, after Christ. AD 393 was the first synod and they came together and then they came again four years later for Carthage. You say, why did they have to come back and uh, make a second time? There was one letter that was a major problem and that was the letter of Hebrews. Because unlike all the other letters which tell you who it's written by, that it's written by an apostle, the letter of Hebrews doesn't tell us who it's written by. And so that required a bit more uh, thought before they, they came to canonization. But that's when it became a rock-solid fact. And, and by the way, the word canonization doesn't mean a canon, okay? It means a rule. That's what the word canon means. When we talk about the canon of Scripture... We're not talking about a gun going off. We're talking about a rule of scripture. In fact, Paul uses this very word himself in Galatians 6, verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, Greek word canon, peace and mercy be upon them. So that was the fifth stage. The sixth stage after this was translation. And this wasn't an issue, of course, for the early original readers because they all spoke uh, the language of the New Testament, Koine Greek. Uh, but it became an issue later on in the years that followed. And how we get from this to this is quite a story in itself, uh, from translation from Greek into our Bibles in English. And it starts really with a man called Jerome who... I don't know whether it was helpful or not, but he translated the Bible from Greek into Latin because of the Roman Empire. And uh, his version is known as the Vulgate, and it, it's very heavily leaned upon by the Roman Catholic Church. And in fact, the Roman Catholics had uh, uh, Vulgate 
Bibles, Latin translated Bibles in all their churches and they wanted to keep it that way because nobody could read Latin and therefore nobody could know what there was really going on, that it wasn't in the Bible at all. Well, we praise God, even though it was translated into Latin, God raised up many men, but two men especially, who were responsible for giving us our Bible in English. John Wycliffe in the 1300s, who translated the Bible from Latin into English, and uh, he was the, the first one to do that. And his, his men went out and read the Bible in public. They were uh, people who were traveling preachers who would go and read the Bible to people in the, in the towns and cities so they could have it. But even more so was William Tyndale in the 1500s because he was a real scholar that went back to the original languages uh, of Greek and Hebrew and he translated the Bible from Greek into English. And it was the desire of both these men that the common people have the Bible in their own tongue, easy to read and understand. And uh, William Tyndale did such a good job that when they made the King James Version in 1611, <coughs> something like 75% of the Bible that they, they, they published as uh, an authorised version for King James was William Tyndale's work repackaged. <laughs> and even today, modern Bible translations still lean very heavily on Tyndale's work. These men were real gifts to the church. And we must remember they did that work, William Tyndale, at the cost of his life. He was martyred for that. And it cost to have your Bible in this language that we have it today. The final step is the step of publication. Once it's been translated into English, then getting a copy of the Bible into people's hands. And this, again, is another wonderful uh, story because, amazingly, <coughs> just before, around the time of William Tyndale, in the late 1400s, there was a man called Gutenberg in Germany who invented the printing press and as a result of that, with movable type on his printing press, they were able to then print William Tyndale's translation so that it wasn't just read out to the people. Everybody could have their own copy of it if they could afford to buy one. And that gave us then the Bible in a publica uh, publication that everybody could see and read for themselves. And that's still going on as we're printing Bibles all the time so that you can have a Bible in your hand tonight. So friends, that's how we got our Bible. And uh, you know the story now. And I hope it'll make more precious to you the wonderful book that we have that is God's very own word. Praise the Lord for the scriptures. Bibles, please would you turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. One Bible commentator described Acts chapter 2 as an Everest in the scriptures. And uh, I think that's not a bad description. It is a very key and important chapter. Thank you, Mary. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, 
and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Some years ago, many years ago in uh, Midwest America, uh, a tornado was bearing down on uh, a small community. And the community had gathered, quote unquote, for safety in the chapel, the, uh, the church's, the town center's church. And they decided that they would pray. And the minister, bless him, I think that's the thing to say, uh, he stood up and he prayed a, a very long-winded prayer full of theological claptrap. He stood up and at one point he, he said, Send us the spirit of the children of Israel. Send us the spirit of the, of the children of Moses. Send us the spirit of the promised land. Whatever all that means. <laughs> and one old man at the back of the church very bravely, very rudely, but very wisely interrupted him and said, Lord God, send no one. Come yourself. It's you we need. And the people said amen to that prayer. And I tell you that story because it sums up exactly what the church of Jesus Christ in every generation and every situation needs more than anything else is for God himself to come to us. And praise God, he has done that. The story of Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost is the story of God, the Holy Spirit, coming to the waiting church. It's the fulfillment of the promises of the Lord Jesus. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And John chapter 15, he said that if he went away, he would send the helper, the paraclete, to us, and uh, this is why he ascended into glory 40 days after his resurrection. Christ ascended so that the Holy Spirit could descend, Christ departed so the Spirit could be imparted. And this is one of the great proofs of his resurrection and ascension into glory. How do we know Christ is sat at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Well, I told you the story illustration before, but you'll notice when we come out of this room at the start of a service, I don't stand up straight away and start the service. I sit in the chair and I'm looking up into the gallery because I'm waiting for the two men to get up to the sound desk and then turn the sound on so we can begin. Now, you can't see them, but when I stand up to preach, you can be pretty sure Dave and Kerry have sat down upstairs. Now, that's like the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We can't see in heaven the Lord Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father. But we can tell he has done because what he prophesied, what he promised, has come to the church. The Holy Spirit has been given. This is proof of his ascension and his seating in glory. And I want us to see this evening about the coming of the Holy Spirit in glory so that we can glorify God for it and praise the Lord for it. It's a really wonderful thing that we need to appreciate. You know, we have the original gospel here in the Bible as we were talking about. 
But praise God, we have the original power to preach it as well. The power of the Holy Spirit, which the Lord Jesus gave his church. So let's see this, uh, these, this little passage, verses 1 to 4, and see four things about the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. First thing I want to draw your attention to is the moment that it happened, the moment. In verse 1, the beginning line says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Reader's Digest, July, the, July 2003, page 79, <laughs> had an article called The Best Thing, The Best Time to Do Everything. And it was a great article. <laughs> and it was all about the best time to do any job you can think of. I remember the one thing I remember from reading this was the best time to buy shoes is in the afternoon. Because when you're in the afternoon, your feet have swollen and uh, you've been walking around on your feet all day. So that's the best size for your shoes to, to be uh, when you're buying shoes. And it was the best time to do everything. And there is a right time to do all things, isn't it? Ecclesiastes 3 tells us there is a time and a season for everything under heaven the emperor hadrian said to be right too soon is to be wrong <laughs> and sometimes you can be out of time uh, even with something like a, uh, something in music or even the the punchline of a joke or something like that timing matters very much you know in 2016 the space flight center at goddard in maryland america added one second to the year now, you might have felt the drag. You might have felt the year was getting a little bit longer. But one second was necessary because when they're tracking the trajectory of man-made objects in space, they need to be accurate right down to the millisecond because of where Earth is going to be in its rotation, where the objects are going to be in space. If you're launching up a, a rocket, you don't want it to hit a satellite or something like that. They have to be absolutely precise to the timing. And I want to say this, dear friends, let us never think that God is any less precise in his timing of his actions. God is very precise. And he was very precise in the sending of the Holy Spirit. We're told it came on the day of Pentecost. In fact, we're told when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, that word fully come there means when it was accomplished. Uh, it wasn't in the season of Pentecost. You know, uh, after the last Jewish feast, they start doing something called counting the Omer. Now, you know, all the kids have an advent calendar that counts down the number of days to Christmas. Well, the Jewish people used to do something like that, counting down from the last feast, which was first fruits, counting towards the day of Pentecost. And they would say, today is the fourth day of the Omer, the fifth day of the Omer. So when uh, Thomas uh, had his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the eighth day, you read that in John 20, it was the eighth day of the Omer. When the Lord Jesus ascended into glory, 40 days after that was the 40th day of the Omer. And this is how the Jewish mind would register it. But when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, it was when the day of Pentecost had fully come. It wasn't on the 49th day, it was bang on target. It was on the 50th day. That's what the word Pente 
obviously means Pentecost. And God was exact in the timing of the sending of the Holy Spirit to the church in the book of Acts. Now, why is that so significant? Well, it had a historical significance for the Jewish people because part of the, the, the memory of, of, of the Feast of Pentecost is you'll remember that the calendar was based on the events starting off from Egypt when they were delivered by the Passover lamb. And 50 days later on, they were at Mount Sinai when God came down and met with Moses and gave the law. And there are a lot of Jewish uh, legends that are not disputed, but they are not scripture. But the legends say that when God came down, there was a mighty rushing wind. And there was, of course, the fire on Mount Sinai. And God spoke to Moses, not only in the language of Hebrew, but he spoke to him in every tongue under the earth. Now that's Jewish tradition and was Jewish tradition at the time these events happened. So can you see a significance with what happened? These two great mountains, as it were, Mount Sinai and then Mount Zion, where the Holy Spirit is given in the New Testament. Moses still spoke with a stutter under the law, but the children who were born again of the Spirit of God, they spoke freely in other tongues. So there was a historical significance. But even more, I believe, there was a prophetic significance. Because, you see, the day of Pentecost was the right day for the Holy Spirit to come and for the church to be born. If you look in your Bibles, and you don't have to do this now, but you can make a note to do this later, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, you'll find the seven feasts of the children of Israel, which are called the feasts of the Lord. Now, there are other feasts, like the Feast of Purim, the Feast of Esther, the Feast of Hanukkah, that weren't in this. These were added later. But these were ones that were given by the Lord to the people of Israel to celebrate every year. And there's seven feasts. And the middle feast is the Feast of Pentecost. Now, prophetically, when we look at this, we can see that the seven feasts all follow God's timetable for man's redemption. Not only do they look back on things that happened with the escape from Egypt, but they look prophetically forward as well. The word Moedim is used uh, pro- with the feasts, and the word Moedim means an appointed time. Another word is used, I think it's the word Makrem, which means a rehearsal. And these feasts were a rehearsal for what was to come. So, for instance... Passover, the first feast on the calendar, was the slaying of the Passover lamb for the redemption of the people. Well, guess what? Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. And the Lord Jesus died at the feast of Passover. Feast of unleavened bread is when the the bread is, is, is hidden and the people eat unleavened bread, not bread with yeast in it. And uh, that symbolizes, I believe, the, the body of Christ in its purity laid in the tomb. And by the way, that's what the church body should be like as well. A body without yeast, without sin in it, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. First fruits was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus didn't die sometime around first fruits. He, he rose exactly on the feast of first fruits. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ our first fruits has been risen for us. And we are going to be like him. He was the first fruits of all the other raised people later on. And uh, then we have the Feast of Pentecost. 
And the Feast of Pentecost is when they gathered in the uh, harvest, the wheat harvest, and they made two loaves and they offered them up in the temple with giving thanks to God for what happened at Mount Sinai and the deliverance of Israel. It's a harvest service, but it's a memory in what's in the past as well. But this was prophetic of the church. The two loaves of bread, the church is like a, a loaf of bread, according to 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, both had leaven in them, so they're a picture of the church in truth. And they're a picture of the Jews and the Gentiles in one body. And the priest would offer it up to God. The remaining priests come in the... Uh, the remaining priests. The remaining feasts come in the autumn season. The others were spring feasts. And these were trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. And this gives God's future prophetic plan. Trumpets, we're going to hear a trumpet one day and the church is going to be called out, raised up to be with the Lord in heaven at the rapture of the church. The Day of Atonement is called a feast, but it's a fast. It's the day of afflicting their souls. It's the day of being humbled and brought to repentance. That's what's going to happen to Israel in the tribulation. And the final feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, is where they remember uh, the, the, the booths they used to live in and the fact that they celebrated with God's provision for them. And it's the feast that's associated with the kingdom. And God, it says in the book of Revelation, will tabernacle with men. It's very interesting when John wrote his gospel... The emphasis, as Aaron's shown us, is on the spring feasts, especially the Passover feast. When John wrote the book of Revelation, there's a theme running through with the autumn feasts as well. The rapture, the sound of the trumpet, when John's caught up to heaven, then the time of judgment, and at the end, the tabernacles. So we see God has a plan. And those seven feasts have six feasts, either side, which are prophetic, of Israel and God's dealings with Israel and in the middle there's one of God's dealings with the church and that's a wonderful picture of of where we are in history and why the church was born at Pentecost it's like God has put his hand on the stopwatch for Israel and he'll come back to Israel after the church has been completed and raptured into heaven and then the program for Israel will continue but this is why the Holy Spirit came on this day. And I want you to know, I find it so encouraging that God's timetable is running perfectly to time. Uh, I love it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in, in, a, in one of his commentaries. This is the wonderful thing the plan about the plan of God. There is no obstacle here. This can't be stopped by a bit of snow or ice. This can't be stopped by a breakdown on the line. God sends his express through. <laughs> I love that imagery. God's, God's plan runs to time. And you know what, friends? God's timetable for you will be on time as well. God's timetable will be for you on time as well. Let me just give a word of testimony here to help explain this. You know, my dear Heather has had breast cancer and has surgery but it came about because they did a, a mammogram scan uh, a few months back do you know she was due to have that scan that that check before lockdown but because of lockdown it got put on hold and Hannah our daughter pointed this out she said you know what mum she said if you'd had that scan that cancer would have grown and nobody would have known it was there 
but God meant you to have the scan now. So it was found early and you were saved. I just find a huge encouragement in that. And we can trust God's timetable for our lives as well. I don't know what you're going through right now in your life, what's happening right now, but trust God's timing. He is absolutely the master of getting it right on time. Second thing we see here is the meeting. And this is the time and the place where the Holy Spirit was poured out. We read in verse 1 again, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And here we see that the church was gathered together in a united form, all in one accord, in one place, when the Holy Spirit came. And this was because the Lord Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until he sent the promise of his father. And uh, he said the same thing in chapter one of the book of Acts as well, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. And from then on, after the Lord Jesus ascended, the church started meeting regularly for prayer and meeting together with one accord. And that is the key phrase that keeps coming up all the way through, like an anthem, all the way through uh, the book of Acts. And they were meeting in the temple, in one of the upper rooms in the temple, it's the only place Jews would have been on this feast day because they were meant to gather. So it would have been in the temple complex somewhere in the upper place. 120 of them, we know from chapter 1, and it was then that the Holy Spirit came. Now I love that because in the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, 120 priests were, were serving God in the temple when the cloud of the Shekinah glory came and filled the temple. And there's a parallel there, a picture uh, with, with that. 120 is a, a biblical number that's to do with the end of flesh and the beginning of God. And so you see Moses died at 120 years old and, and so on. There's many illustrations of this. Noah waited 120 years before he was allowed in the ark. And man was given 120 years. But 120 people were waiting on God, praying on the day of Pentecost for the Holy Spirit to come. I understand Jewish people to this day have a traditional belief that on the night of Pentecost, the heavens are opened and it's the best time to pray because God pours out blessings. Well, he certainly did on this occasion with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And you know what, dear friends, I find this, again, a part of the glory of the coming of the Holy Spirit to the church. If you were to ask me, what is the most despised meeting in the church? It's sadly the prayer meeting. You know, people will come along if you have a special guest speaker and they'll come along if you have uh, a, a church meeting, you wait to Thursday. We'll be packed out with people who never come on a Thursday night normally. But the prayer meeting is probably the most despised meeting of all. I'll go to a church service and I'll, I want to be taught, but I don't want to gather with the saints to pray. But you know what? God forever sanctified the prayer meeting by making that the time and the place when the church received the Holy Spirit, when they were all in one accord to pray. And this is something we need to take to heart, that 
the works of the Holy Spirit are done in answer to prayer. Someone put it very crudely but effectively like this. It is the squeaky wheel that gets the oil. <laughs> and it's the, the, the church that cries out to God for the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst that will see this work done. You know, when a tiger attacks a victim, do you know what the first thing it does is? It gets its claw and it slashes their throat. Because the most important thing it can do, first of all, is slash the airwaves, the air, 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 the breathing of that creature so it dies quickly. Then it can do what it wants to it. Do you know what? When the devil wants to attack a church, the first thing he will slash is the prayer meeting. We need to be a church that comes together for prayer. Brothers and sisters, we need to come together on Thursday nights and meet with one accord in one place. That's why Zoom is okay when we're not able to be in one place, but when we are, we need to be in one place together for prayer and to call on the Lord in agreement. Someone said two in agreement can do more than two million in discord. And that's true. Matthew 18, Jesus said, uh, if uh, two, of you, two or three of you agree on anything on earth, it will be done for them in heaven. And so the church coming together and praying at the prayer meeting resulted in mighty works of God. And you might say to yourself, well, that was all in the past, John. You know, that's not how it is anymore. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. If we were to talk to our brothers and sisters in Korea, you would hear of the power of the prayer meeting. The church in China and other places. Do you know why revival often comes to prisons? And there's been revivals in prisons in Argentina. It's because the people can't go anywhere else. <laughs> and the Christians are all banged up together. And therefore they are all in one accord in one place in prayer. And that's often how God works. Do you know, in 1857, a man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphia was concerned for the city of New York. He was a Christian. He wanted to see the gospel further in the city of New York. And so he decided he would start a prayer meeting. It would be a lunchtime prayer meeting because people are busy at other times, but they were in town uh, during the day. So he would start a 12 noon prayer meeting and he rented a, a Dutch reformed church in Fulton Street and put a sign outside saying there would be a prayer meeting at 12 o'clock. And he sat in the prayer meeting on the first day thinking, Lord, if I heard you right, <laughs> nobody else was there except him. And then he heard the man's, a man's footsteps on the stairs. And the man said, is this where the prayer meeting is? And he said, yes, please. And uh, the two of them started to pray. Next week, the number doubled. They started off, they got to six. And every week, it seemed to double. And the numbers went on. Do you know, in, in the year 1857, the numbers increased. And soon people weren't just coming to pray for the good of the people of New York for their conversions. They were standing up and testifying that they themselves had been receivers of God's grace and had been saved. And at the peak of this revival, 10,000 New Yorkers every week were being converted. I've got it photocopied from a book, if you think I'm exaggerating. 10,000 a week, and it came from a prayer meeting. 
It's so significant. We've got to take this to heart. We all lament the church not being as great as it should be. And we all want to see the blessing of this church. So brothers and sisters, see you Thursday night. Not only for the church meeting, but for the prayer meeting where God will seek her, uh, hear our prayers for him to work by his spirit among us again. The third thing we see here is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit when he came. And this is in verses 2 to 3. Because in verses 2 to 3, we see the the form in which the Holy Spirit appeared to come. It says in verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. The Holy Spirit has appeared in scripture in many forms. You remember when the Lord Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. And that was a visible form so people could know that the Holy Spirit was on the Lord Jesus Christ for his ministry. And the voice from heaven uh, said, this is my son whom I love, my beloved son. And uh, God was letting them know by sight and by sound that he was with his son. Well, here we have the same thing happen again on the day of Pentecost. Only this time, the sight and the sound are given again on the church, the body of Christ on earth. And uh, it's not the dove this time. It's the sound of a rushing mighty wind and the sight of divided tongues of fire. And this was the public manifestation of this experience. And We must be careful when we see this that we understand what God is doing is he's letting us know visibly and audibly that the Holy Spirit has come. Um, John Calvin in his commentary says this. He said they could have easily stood up and preached the gospel and see 3000 people saved by the power of the Holy Spirit without these signs. But those signs were given not only for the disciples then but for us down the centuries later to get the message, this is when the Holy Spirit came to the church. And I think that's very important. And the manifestation is absolutely amazing. The wind, the sound of a rushing mighty wind and the sight of the tongues of fire. I want us to think about each of those a moment because I think there's glory and message in both of them. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit needs, what we need from the Holy Spirit today as well. The rushing mighty wind is a picture of God's power, isn't it? His power. You know, what was it that drove the ship along in, in, in my PowerPoint in the, in, in the verse from 1 P, 2 Peter one twenty one? The holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. It was the wind. In fact, one of the words for the Spirit in the New Testament is the word pneuma, which means breath or wind. In the Old Testament, it's the word ruach, and it means wind. And God is saying that his power is like the power of a wind. Now, a wind can be a mighty power for good, can't it? It can turn a turbine. It can uh, turn windmills. It can put wind into the sails of a ship. It's a very powerful force if harnessed and used. You know, the, the strongest wind on record is 318 miles an hour. 
and that was in Washington State in 1999. But this was a sudden sound from heaven in the prayer meeting of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house. It always reminds me that of uh, the perfume that was anointing the Lord. Uh, his, uh, went by Mary in John chapter 12. The smell of that fragrance filled the whole house. Well here the sound filled the whole house. It wasn't just what one person sort of thought they might have heard. It, everybody heard it. It was a deafening bellow as it came through in the building. And it was as of a rushing mighty wind. Of course, winds are normally outside houses, not inside. Inside is where you're safe. But this is the wind of the Spirit, his power. And dear friends, how we need the power of the Holy Spirit to drive the church today. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I've got lead feet. I really do. You know, when it comes around to Christmas time, we're going to give out those leaflets. I feel I've got lead feet. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to drive me on. Wind in my sails. Sometimes getting up here to preach. I want the wind in my sails behind me. And you know, wind can be such a powerful force to take people forward, can't it? The Lord Jesus said in John 3, 8, that those who are born of the Spirit would be like those who are driven along by the wind. You can't see where it, you can't see it, but you tell by the power of it what is happening. How we need to be people today that are filled with the power of God for his service. Ronald Dunn in his book, Don't Just Stand There, Pray Something. He says this, the book of Acts is filled with prayer meetings. Every forward thrust the first church made was immersed in prayer. Take another look at the church on Pentecost. They prayed 10 days and preached 10 minutes and 3,000 people were saved. Today we pray 10 minutes, preach 10 days and are ecstatic if anyone is saved. Sums it up, doesn't it? We need the power of God. We need to pray for the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit to come and drive Union Chapel forward in those days. And may it fill the whole house, everyone, every one of these rooms. When the Sunday school meet, when the youth meet upstairs, when we're in the prayer meeting or the church meeting or here in the main hall. And as it says in verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat on upon each of them fire is a symbol that is associated with god you remember moses burning bush and uh, his first encounter with the lord and hebrews chapter 12 tells us our god is a consuming fire and the lord is a fire uh, it appears as a manifestation of fire in so many passages of scripture when christ comes he's coming in blazing glory says 2 thessalonians chapter 1 and here the fire of the holy spirit came to each one i love that it wasn't like the fiery cloudy pillar which was over the whole tabernacle in one it was over each individual can i put it like this each Christian had their own personal Pentecost. That's basically what we've been told. It wasn't just the apostles. It was all of the saints had the fire of the Holy Spirit upon them. And it sat upon them. Now what does that mean? That means it, it resided over them. And it was a symbol. The fact that it sat upon them is a symbol. I'm not going anywhere. 
Unlike in the Old Testament when the Holy Spirit would come on someone for a season and leave, the Holy Spirit was coming on the church to stay. And praise God, when you're born of God, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit within you. That's a wonderful truth. Every truly born, uh, child, born again child of God, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ, says Romans 8. But we have the Holy Spirit within us, and he is as a tongue of fire. What does a fire do? A fire gives heat, doesn't it? You know, And the Lord Jesus says in Revelation, he wants a hot church, not a cold church or a lukewarm church. He wants a hot church. May God increase our heat. The, Holy, uh, the fire also gives light. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates the word of God. You come to your Bible time, come to your quiet time tomorrow morning, what are you going to do? Pray, Lord, help me to understand and see your truth here. Holy Spirit, illuminate the pages to me that you inspired. He gives light. Fire also cleanses. You know, I was reading something written by Bear Grylls. He said, if you have to do surgery out on the, on, the, on, the, on the battlefield, he said, you have to sterilize a needle in a fire to make it safe. And fire cleanses. And the Holy Spirit, when he comes in a person's life, he can help us in the battle against sin. In fact, I want to tell you this, and this is my own personal testimony. I am not a perfect Christian. My family will tell you that. But I have never known help from anything like the help of the Holy Spirit. I've read wonderful Christian paperbacks on how to conquer sin. And then I've gone up and gone and sinned again. People say, well, what you need is an accountability partner. Great idea. But you know what? I found I can lie. There's only one thing that will help you in the battle against sin. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 5. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the only conquering power. The Lord Jesus said in John 4 to the woman that he who has my water, the water I give them, will never thirst. Talking about the addiction problem of sin recently. We thirst for things, but when we have the the water of God in us, he can quench that thirst. And how we need to appeal to God for the Holy Spirit's power to cleanse our lives from sin. And I'm sure you could draw up many other parallels if you think about what fire can do as well. Fire is what uh, the sacrifices were laid on. And all our offerings to God in the preaching of the word of God and everything are nothing Without the fire of God. And this is what we need so much. To make us hot Christians. Isn't it? Will James the psychologist philosopher said this. Religion is always a dull habit. Or an acute fever. (laughs) It's one of the two. If somebody has religion. They either have a dull habit. Or they have an acute fever. They're on fire. Now I want to ask you. How is it with you? Is coming to church just a dull habit? You need the power of the Holy Spirit to fill you. If you're a child of God, you need his power to fill you so that you have a fever, you're hot for the Lord. C.T. Studd said this in, about his childhood. He said, we, were, we boys were brought up to go to church regularly. But although we had a kind of religion, it didn't amount to much. It was just like having toothache. 
we were always sorry to have Sunday come and glad when it was Monday morning. The Sabbath, as they called it then, was the dullest day of the whole week and just because we'd got hold of the wrong end of religion. (laughs) I think that's absolutely true. So turn to the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and ask him to give you the power of the Spirit to live the Christian life. You don't have to live it alone. The manifestation shows us. And you don't need to be afraid of praying for the Holy Spirit to come. It's a, it was a divided tongue. You know the significance of the divided tongues? It's not just it divided and went to each of them. But a cloven tongue is how it's translated in the King James. And the cloven animals were the clean animals in Levitical law. It's a pure fire. It's not wildfire. It's God's holy fire. As he's the Holy Spirit. You can be safe praying for his power to help you in your life. Finally, we see here the miracles of uh, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 4. And it says in verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When the Holy Spirit came on the church, there were two great miracles that happened. First of all, they were all filled. It wasn't just one or two individuals. It was everybody who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I said earlier on, when you become a Christian, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that is true. But not every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's resident, but only when you're full of the Holy Spirit is he, as it were, president in charge of you and flowing in his power. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and he helped them. That was something for every believer and it is for us today. And it says, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I'm not going to get into the discussion of tongues tonight. We all know that tongues are the languages that God gave the people of God on the day of Pentecost so that they could minister the gospel and so they could praise the Lord. We believe that was a supernatural utterance. And some of us believe it's for today. Some of us don't believe it is for today, uh, depending on your theology. The point is this. The The power of God was given for the gift of the Spirit to the church. And the church today also has gifts to be used that come from God's enabling. And this is so important that we get this. You know, a few years ago, well, a few years ago, many years ago, A.W. Tozer shook the church when he said, you know what, if you were to take the Holy Spirit out of 90% of the congregations in America... Everything would carry on next week as normal. Because it's not supernatural. It's just man doing things. And he was right. But the real power of God enables people to do things they're not naturally gifted to. I'm not a gifted speaker. You can probably work that out anyway. But the Holy Spirit enables me to stand and preach. It's his power It's not my power. It's like the woodpecker who was striking the side of a tree with his head and uh, beak and and hammering away. And suddenly as he was striking the the tree, a lightning bolt from a thunderstorm hit the tree and split the, 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 the tree in half. And the bird thought, wow, what power's in my beak? It wasn't his power. It was the power of the storm. 
And the power of God is what enables us to do it. And we need to see the miracles, the power of God. And uh, look to him for it. This is so important. You know, when John Wesley was writing the rules for the Methodist church, the first rule for any steward in the Methodist church was they had to be men filled with the Holy Spirit. Couldn't be a steward in the Methodist church at that time without. And you know what? There's something for us in that today, isn't there? We need his miraculous power yet again. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, said the hymn writer. wonder if you can say that prayer yourself tonight. Don't be offended when I say we need the Holy Spirit. John Hyde, the famous missionary, went out to India, was on board a boat in 1892 on his virgin virgin trip out to uh, India. And as he was going out, uh, a letter had been sent to the ship's captain to be passed on to him. And he opened the letter on deck, and it was from one of his father's old friends, a retired missionary. And the man had written this letter and said, John, don't be offended, but you need to seek God for the power of the Holy Spirit for your ministry in India. And he was offended. He took that letter, he threw it up, and he threw it over on the deck. And he thought, doesn't the man think I have the Holy Spirit? After time... He began to feel a bit convicted about it. And he went over and he picked up the letter and he went back to his cabin and he started to pray humbly before God. Fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit to do this work. And it was the turning point in his ministry. Dear friends, let this sermon for us tonight be the turning point for us going forward as a church. We need the Holy Spirit. Praise God he's been given to the church, but let's ask him to fill us and use us afresh.